us pray. Father, be with us today as we open your word. Might you teach us what you want us to learn, and might what we say and what we do glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I'll, let's, get, let's get this over with right up front. This is my tartan, Scottish tartan. My wife and Cynthia Cummins got together, Cummins got together and uh, made it for me, and uh, I appreciate it. My wife said, tell them what it means. Tell them what the name means. This is, this is the McPherson tartan, McPherson tartan. McPherson means son of the parson. Son of the Parson. You know what the McPherson clan was known for? Cattle theft. <laughs> so fortunately, uh, God in his mercy called me to himself and forgave my sins, and I now have life in him. So this morning, um, I, I'd just like to ask you a question. How many of you keep um, your calendar on your phone? Keep your calendar on your phone. The rest of you, I assume, have a paper calendar. Okay. Uh, first thing I want you to do is I want to make sure that your phone is turned off. Okay. And then I want you to go to the date in your calendar when Jesus is coming back. You, you, you do have that, don't you? You have that on your calendar, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, probably not. Probably not. And uh, I'd like to take, uh, like to have you take a look and see with us today what, what uh, the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I think uh, we have it up there. really appreciate Kayla doing that for us. And and Aubrey back there so that you can kind of follow along. You also have something there with notes that if you want to take some notes. So in that passage, we learn that there is a day of the Lord coming, and that's really the key, the day of the Lord. So let me give you a brief background to the verses that we're going to look at today. The NIV study note says, much of 1 Thessalonians is not overly theological, overtly overtly theological. A key theme in both the Thessalonian letters, however, is eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the return of Christ, with chapter 4 giving it major consideration. Thus, the return of Christ permeates 1 Thessalonians, and the two letters are often designated as the eschatological letters of Paul. Warren Wearsby has written a set of commentaries, basically, and each of the commentaries, he starts with the word be. For example, in uh, Psalms, or Psalm, his, his commentary, which he actually has two books on Psalms, is called Be Worshippers. Well, for, he, he has a commentary for First and Second Thessalonians, and it's called Be Ready. Uh, that was the theme last week, if you'll remember from Father Don's homily. So when we come to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, 
The first words in the New Revised Standard Version that we use for our lectionary is but. And uh, uh, the question is, but what? Uh, some of the other translations use the, uh, uh, the, the conjunction now. Uh, and the question we have to say, now what? And he gives us what he wants to talk with us about. If we were to go back and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's a passage that I often use uh, in my, for my homilies for, for, um, for funerals uh, because it has such great hope. Uh, and it goes this way. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe, um, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him, with him uh, those who have died. For this we declare to you in the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the, uh, uh, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up to the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And verse 18 says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In other words... The Thessalonians were concerned about what would happen to their loved ones who had already died. What happens? What about this day of judgment, this time when, uh, when the eternal kingdom is set up? Uh, and I wish that I could develop the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 more. But there are two things in this passage that are very important. Number one, the promise in this passage of resurrection to new life based on the belief that Jesus died and ra was raised from the dead by both those who are alive and both those who are alive and those who have died in Christ there is hope of life outside there is hope of life outside of faith in Christ there is no life and two those who have placed their faith in Christ have hope to be with him forever Based on these statements, Paul now moves into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as I said, he has the word but. But as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need for anything written to you. For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night when the people say there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail comes upon a woman with child, and there will be no escape. And so when we look at this, the first thing that we notice is that there is a day of the Lord that is going to come. And he says in it, but as for the times and the seasons, I don't need to write to you. And I think the reason why he says I don't need to write to you is the exact coming of the uh, time of the Lord is not the important thing. Although that seems to be what we want to, to, to hone in on. The coming of this time when the day of the Lord is going to take place. Okay. We know before we move into the ultimate rule of Christ in heaven and on earth as, for, 
or the use of the, uh, of the Greek translation here that there is a day of the Lord coming. Now, the historical context of the day of the Lord is that in the Old Testament, the expression the day of the Lord often refers to the time of divine judgment for enemies. We find that in the book of Obadiah and the time of deliverance for the people of God in Joel and in Zechariah. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, the thing that we always look at is that we've got a king who is coming to reign and to judge. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Okay? As we read in the first passage in Zechariah today, one of the things that we noted there was that there was a day of the Lord, or that day was going to come where he was going to do that. So Paul is warning that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment and exhibits God's wrath and God's goodness as well to his people. If we would continue on in the passage, if we look back at that passage that, that Deacon Karen read, what we find out there is that there is a king that has gone or a ruler that has gone, and he entrusts his people with certain talents. And we know that he comes back and he expects a, uh, a, a, uh, for them to give a report on what they've done with their talents. Okay? So those are the things that he has there. If we would go on down through, we would note that he comes to a passage at the end of the book, or at the end of chapter 25, where indeed that king is coming and there is going to be a time of judgment, goats, lambs, or sheep, and what's going to take place there is noted by the people. And he ends chapter 25 of the book of Matthew by saying that there is going to be a judgment that's going to bring eternal punishment, but also eternal life. That's the day of the Lord that we are talking about. The thing that we need to understand, and it doesn't make any difference whether you're a preterist, whether you're a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, pan-mill, whatever. It doesn't matter. There is a day coming that's going to be called the day of the Lord, and on that day, the king is going to establish his throne as a place of judgment. Um, Bill Jenkins here? No. Bill often reminds us that Jesus fulfills the aspect of the kingship of things. And one of the responsibilities that the king had was to judge the people. And that's what will take place at that particular time before we move into a new heaven, a new earth for eternity. Okay? The thing that we also find out in this passage, if you look down through it, is that there are going to be people who are going to say, don't worry about it. Nothing, nothing to worry about here. Nothing to see. Just keep moving. Peace, they'll say. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. But what this passage says is that that day is going to come 
and it's going to be sudden destruction, and it's going to come upon them as travail comes upon a woman with child, and there will be no escape. He also says on up that it's like a thief in the night. I have a, um, I have a security system at my house. I have not yet had a thief call me and say, listen, I'm going to break into your house at 12.05. Would you turn the security system off? Thieves don't usually do that, do they? They come when you're not expecting them. They come when you're not expecting them. Now, even today when we start to talk about, about giving birth, uh, we live in a day and age where um, sometimes you can just choose the day that that baby is going to be born. We're going to induce labor. We're going to do a C-section or whatever it is. But you know the truth of the matter is sometimes babies don't wait for those days. Some days, they, sometimes they, came, they come early. I think our daughter Rachel was, what, two weeks early? Two weeks early. Uh, Matthew was four four weeks early, um, you know, and um, we hadn't had anything. We, we just figured that they would come on, and, you know, doctor said they're coming on such and such a date. Of course they're coming on such and such a date. We all know that, right? They always do, except when they don't. You know, and the truth is that the coming of our Lord is kind of like that. He's not going to come except when he does. You know, so the idea is that there is a day that's going to come and it's a day that's going to be called, it's called a day of judgment. And I wish that we had time to just spend on those words, but we don't. It's going to be a time where he's going to look at people and say, have you followed me? Haven't you followed me? That's going to be the big question at that particular judgment. Okay. And he says that there is no escape. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Later on, while we're doing the, thanks, the great Thanksgiving, we're going to be reminded of the, uh, of the aspect of, of our faith, the, the, the basis of our faith, the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ has died. Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Those things are important for us to understand. They are the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for us in our place when we didn't deserve it. He was raised because God accepted the sacrifice that he made. And the importance of that is that he's going to come back again and eternally establish a kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be far greater than anything that you and I could even ask or think. It's going to be there. It's coming. There is no escape. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, have I placed my faith in Jesus Christ? Am I ready for that judgment to come? But then he goes on and he says, okay, so he's coming. 
Now, the Thessalonians were a group of people that they were trying to put it together just like sometimes we're trying to put it together. And as believers, we await the day of the Lord. The question then comes, uh, let's see, but you are not in verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brethren, for the day uh, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not on the, of the light, night, or darkness. So now that we are sons of the day, what's supposed to happen? Well, we know that the Thessalonians weren't exactly sure what was to take place. Over in, first, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul talks with them about how they ought to live. Part of the problem with the Thessalonians were that there were some of them that were going off and sitting on the mountain and waiting for Jesus to come back. Kind of like that third guy that we read about with the one talent. I'll just wait for you to come back. And Jesus and, 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 and Peter says, don't, you know, or Paul says, don't do that. As a matter of fact, those of you who are sitting on a mountain and you are not doing anything, uh, and there's empty and idle gossip that's going around. If you don't eat, if you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. Get your life together and be what God wants you to be. Live the way he wants you to live, is what he really is saying in those passages that look like that. So as we come down here, we notice that there are two groups of people here. There are those who are of the night and darkness, and those who are of the day and light. Now, if we were to go back to the time preceding the time of Christ, and we were to look at the people called the Essenes, they were people who thought that they knew everything that there was to know, and they just needed to go out. So they went out to the caves in Qumran, and they, they, they uh, copied scripture. But they often talked about being either of the night or of the day. There was this dichotomy that they had. So when we look at this passage and it talks to us about the night and the day, we need to understand these things. Those who are in darkness and asleep. The idea of sleep and darkness is symbolic in scripture of those who walk in opposition to the authority of God. They don't care about anything that God says. They don't care. There is no God. There is no God. He can't tell me what to do. After all, things have been as they have been for thousands of years, haven't they? Surely, the time of judgment would come by now. Uh, we'll see a little bit later about some of that. Then those who are of the light and of the day. The idea in scripture of day and light is symbolic in scripture of those who walk in recognition of the authority of God. So there's a group of people who take no, uh, don't look at God as having any authority over their lives, and a group of people who recognize that God has authority over their lives. Those who are in the light and are of the day, then what should happen? So, in verse 6, we look and it says, 
So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. When, when he comes, he says, in, in, you'll see there, and we're not of the night or of darkness. And then he says, consequently, consequently, don't be like those who are of the darkness that deny the sovereignty and the rule of Christ in your life. Don't do that. He says, consequently, there are other the, these other people do that. And then I love what he says here, but let us keep awake and sober. And I love that contrastive there because it's a heavy contrastive. It's not just, it's not just a light. It's a very heavy contrastive. Uh, but there are these guys, but you need to live like this. You don't live like the world. You live in a different place. You live in, you live in light. So what does it mean when he says, I want you to be awake and sober? The word awake doesn't mean simply, gee, I got up this morning. Believe me, there are some people who get up in the morning, they are not awake. They are not awake. Because the idea of the word means to be alert, to be to be open to look out for what's coming your way. Be alert. Know that this is the day that the Lord has made. And we need to rejoice and be glad in it. So that we are looking for what God has for us throughout the day because he is our sovereign. And then he says, be sober. The idea of this word sober doesn't mean just don't get drunk with wine. You go, I don't get drunk with wine. Well, you also may still not be sober either. Because the idea of sober is to be calm and collected in spirit. The Thessalonians were dealing with difficult times and they needed to be sober. That is, calm and collected in the knowledge of their relationship with God who would give them peace that passes understanding even when things seem to be dire and disoriented and a world spinning out of control. That's not like our world at all. Isn't it amazing how we sit and go, I can't believe that this is happening in our world. I mean, we look back. And there, there are a few young folks that don't remember as many years as I remember, you know? And we look back, and things were different. But you know what? They were still out of control. There were still things. I remember, I remember back in, I think it was 1967, the Six-Day War in, 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 uh, uh, in Israel. I was in Bible college. The Bible college that I went to was pre-trip, pre-mill dispensation. The fact that they were attacking Jerusalem meant that the Lord was coming soon. You know? I mean, books were written about it. Right? But the truth is, he is coming. But it's not necessarily based on where we are, and we need to be sober. What is our responsibility? Our responsibility is that they need that we need 
to keep our eyes on Jesus that, you know, when the, when, when the highway patrolman says, I want you to walk this straight line to find out if you're sober or not, God says to us, I want you to walk the straight line that leads to Jesus Christ and the way that he wants you to live. These two words are also used over in 1 Peter chapter 8 as a warning that Satan likes to bring chaos and disorder, confusion and mayhem when it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be alert. Be alert that there are going to be times that are going to be difficult. There are going to be times that might that might lead you to temptation. Be alert. Because there's nothing that the devil loves more than to throw the, the, the church of Jesus Christ into chaos. And the way that we stay out of chaos is when we are alert to the fact that that's exactly what the devil wants. That's what sin wants. That's what sin wants. And to be sober in the fact that we are calm in knowing that we've got a God who loves us and cares about us and will be with us during our times of need. Then Paul talks to them as, as you come down here. For those who are asleep, but uh, let me see. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. What is Paul telling them to do? I want you to put on that breastplate to get ready to go out. And that breastplate is a breastplate of love and a breastplate, breastplate of faith. Breastplate of faith first and then love. When we talk about this, he's really talking about us doing the works that result from the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Father Don reminded us last week that it's not the good works that we do that brings about salvation. It's faith in Jesus Christ that brings us a salvation that produces good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we usually stop there after 8 and 9. I got myself saved. I'm not going to go to, uh, I'm not going to go to eternal punishment. Verse 10 comes along. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. To do good works. The labor prompted by, prompted by love. Love as it's meant here does not stop with ordinary effort. But goes the second mile and even beyond for the sake of another. Labor is more distinctly spiritual service. If Father, uh, Father Matthew does the Matthew 25 passage where, that, that ends that, cha that chapter, one of the things that he will talk about is a love that shows that Christ is in our lives. Do we love so that Christ is seen in our lives? After all, did not Christ say to his disciples, men will know that you're my disciples if you have loved one another. Important, isn't it? And those are the works that we do. And then we have a head that's protected for a hope. It rules out discouragement 
and goes forward no matter how hopeless the situation. Such endurance is possible only when one is inspired by the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pam sent me a, 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 a little video um, by uh, Tim Keller. And um, in it was the idea that he was talking about Tolstoy. And Tolstoy started out as being an atheist. And he'd be around to the guys, and they would go, hey, you know, you live, you die, you eat worms. And there ain't no, there ain't no more to it. And Tolstoy began to think, after all, he was a creative writer, wasn't he? And he thought, why should I keep on writing? Why should I keep on writing? It doesn't mean anything. Keller goes on to say that Tolstoy found that there was meaning in life through God, through Christ. Some of his later works show that. And Keller went on to say, there are those who will tell you that because you are a Christian, you are stupid. But the truth of the matter is, the one who denies God, is it not true? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. If we look at things and we see that it is the God who created, it is the God who guides you and me, it is the God who sent Jesus Christ in your place and my place, that gives us a whole new perspective. It's truth and it's not stupid, it's knowledge. Hope essentially is the certainty that Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to judge. So, what ought we do then with these things? Well, we do them because God has not destined us to judgment or wrath, but to life that is salvation in Jesus Christ. In our grief share this past week, we talked about getting stuck in our grief. One of the suggestions was that when we despair and become despondent, we might want to change our thinking. Look at things differently. Maybe from the fact that I have a God that loves me and cares about me and knows what I'm going through and I'm not going alone. Friday morning, my friend Gordon Green wrote in his uh, devotional that he sends out to us, when trials and suffering come our way, distrust, self-pity, self-loathing will keep us ensnared in despair. So how do we find our way forward when stuck? How do we drive through feelings of hopelessness rather than park there? A great place to start is by prayerfully reflecting on the truths of Scripture that address how the Father and the Son care for us. Number one, they delight in us, according to Hebrews chapter 12. Number two, they will not let our true enemies, Satan and sin, triumph over us, John chapter 10. They will uphold us because of our faith and trust in them, in Jesus Christ, according to Isaiah 41. And then fourthly, they have prepared a place for us in their eternal kingdom. And with God's help, we must exercise trust, humility, and patience in the assurance when we do, we will renew our minds through his Holy Spirit 
provide practical care from fellow uh, believers and raise us from our troubles at the last time. You know, one of the things that happens in our passages sometimes in a lectionary is that we stop short. Um, yeah, if you could give me, yeah. Verse 11 is not in our reading, is it? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That's how this ended. We started this section in chapter 4, verse 13 by saying, I don't want you to have no hope. I don't want you to live as those who have no hope. And then he finishes up by saying, therefore encourage one another that we have a Savior that is going to see us on the day of judgment. And if we have Jesus Christ, there is not wrath for us, but there is life for us. And then that great theological work. I think, Mary, I think you shared this on Facebook. The do what makes you happy culture is so toxic for Christians. We are not called to do what makes us happy. We're called to do what glorifies God. Christianity isn't always sunshine and happiness. It's hard work and dedication to him, not us. Do what glorifies.